So if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, we are beginning a new series today in a very famous part of Scripture. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And even if you're not that familiar with Christianity, you have probably heard something about the Sermon on the Mount. And it is, of course, uh, one of the most influential, one of the most compelling and beautiful bodies of ethical teaching ever given in the history of the world. And it comes to us in the Gospel of Matthew, right at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And so in Matthew 1 and 2, we get baby Jesus, he's born, and uh, in Matthew 3 and 4, you have adult Jesus, and he comes on the scene, he is baptized, he goes into the wilderness, and after Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he comes out public preaching the kingdom of God. He preaches the good news of the healing, saving, transformative, powerful reign of God that breaks into the world. Jesus comes announcing, he says, here and now with me, the long-awaited kingdom is here. And one of the very first things that he does after he launches his public ministry is he calls his disciples to himself and he declares to them what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And listen to what it puts it in Matthew chapter five, verse one. It says, in seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus comes on the scene announcing the kingdom of God and he he launches into basically his inaugural address and it is all about life in the kingdom of God. In other words, what does it look like when somebody lives underneath the healing, saving reign of God in their own life? And here in these chapters, chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew, Jesus provides for us what is without question uh, the most inspirational body of ethical teaching in the history of the world. And it's fascinating when you study history, all of the different leaders and figures that have been influenced by the Sermon on the Mount, ranging from Russian novelist Tolstoy to British Prime Minister Winston Churchill to Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement to Gandhi in India and his seeking to liberate India from British imperial rule. In fact, Gandhi was so crazy about the Sermon on the Mount that I read somewhere this week that over the course of about 40 years, he spent two hours every day in meditation. And in his two hours of meditation, every day he would spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount. And he wrote this. He said, Christ's Sermon on the Mount fills me with bliss even today. Its sweet verses have been the power to quench my agony of soul. Winston Churchill, after he became prime minister and right as uh, England entered into World War II, he wrote these words in a public address. He said, the more closely we follow the Sermon on the Mount, the more likely we are to succeed in our endeavors. And again and again and again, you could give examples of people throughout history that have been influenced by this beautiful, this compelling vision of an ethical life of what it looks like to live a fully human life. But while some people have found the Sermon on the Mount incredibly inspiring because of its beautiful moral vision, others have found this, this body of teaching very discouraging because quite frankly, it seems to set 
the bar too high. There was a, a professor of literature at A&M Texas University. Uh, her name was Virginia Stim Owens, and at one point she assigned to her students the job of reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And she thought because she was in Texas, you know, that, you know, some of these people would have some familiarity with this body of teaching. And so she assigned it to her students and asked them to write an essay in response. And she was shocked by the, by the essays that people were writing. And so here's a sampling of some of uh, what she heard. One student write, wrote this. I did not like the essay, The Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another student wrote this. He said, the things asked in the Sermon on the Mount are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. To be angry or insult someone is tantamount to murder. This is, quote, the most extreme, stupid, and unhuman statement I have ever heard. And she was kind of shocked reading these responses about the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not only these students that found the Sermon on the Mount disturbing. No doubt, in Jesus' own day, when he began to articulate this teaching, this moral vision, his own hearers no doubt found it a bit disturbing. Because Jesus makes this statement just in the first uh, several verses, first chapter in uh, chapter 5, verse 20. He says this, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now get this, who were the most religiously committed, faithful people in the days of Jesus? It were the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, these people, if you looked around, you would like, these people, they're the committed ones. If you were looking for a moral exemplar, it would be one of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, they were kind of like working pastors and Bible scholars. They were the people that had the time, uh, the, 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 the space in their schedule in order to study scriptures. And they would articulate exactly what it meant to obey the scriptures. And they would aggressively and very zealously put the scriptures into practice. And almost everybody in the day would revere them. And they walked around in these very impressive looking robes. And, and they had a, a persona about them. You just thought, man, those people were holy. And Jesus says to the common people, he says, unless your righteousness goes far beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. And no doubt they heard those words and they were disturbed and they thought, how could that be? How can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? But it's not just uh, students in Texas A&M University. It's not just people in Jesus' own day. But many Bible scholars have found the Sermon on the Mount very troubling and they've wondered, how are we to read this book. It seems like Jesus sets the standard really, really high. How can anybody live in to this kind of teaching? And because of the high standard that Jesus sets, there's been a variety of different ways in which people have sought to understand this book. And they've asked the question, how should we read this book? And there's been three, four, maybe more different ways in which people have read the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is what might be referred to as the absolutist reading. Anybody here know who Leo Tolstoy is? You know, War and Peace, Anna Karenina. Uh, Tolstoy became famous at the end of his life by making this severe ascetic commitment to embody in an absolute sort of way everything in the Sermon on the Mount. 
and he gave away all of his possessions, and he lived in poverty, and actually very soon after, he died in poverty. And uh, he launched what he called Christian Anarchy. And it was essentially the idea that, look, if you fully obeyed the Sermon on the Mount in society, it would mean anarchy. No oaths, no courts. Uh, Loving your enemies, turn the other cheek. Militaries would be abolished. And he said, this is what the church needs to do. We need to embody the Sermon on the Mount in an absolute sort of way. Now, many have found Tolstoy's reading very difficult. Tolstoy found his reading very difficult. It actually killed him, uh, many people would say. And he wound up, you know, uh, abandoning his spouse at the end of his life. And there were problems with Tolstoy in his own read of the Sermon on the Mount. But one of the issues beyond the own practicality of an absolutist reading is that the text itself doesn't lend itself to an absolutist reading. You see, this book is poetry, The Sermon on the Mount is full of metaphor and hyperbole, stuff like if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, there have been people in church history that have taken that literally. There was a early church scholar named Origen who actually um, castrated himself in response to the commands of Jesus about uh, cutting it off and gouging it out. And a little bit later in his life, he determined that maybe he was rash, and that's probably not what that text of Scripture meant. It's an example of hermeneutics gone really bad. (laughs) Got to be careful how you interpret the Bible. But Jesus uses hyperbole, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. You got a, a big beam in your eye, you know, take it out before you try to get the speck in your neighbor's eye. And Jesus uses metaphor all throughout He talks about trees, and he talks about paths, and he talks about houses. Uh, Jesus uses all kinds of metaphor and hyperbole all throughout this, and so it doesn't lend itself to an absolutist, literalist reading. It's more like a poetic and a beautiful painting that casts a compelling moral vision to inspire the imagination, not to give us all of the answers to every problem in life, but for an imagination that's soaked in this, it helps us to think creatively about life. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi are people whose imaginations were soaked in this book, and it caused them to lead out in new social work inspired by the vision in this book. So the absolutist reading. But the second reading is uh, what's called the monastic reading. And what many Christians said early on was that the, the words of Jesus are so extreme. I mean, it is such tough stuff that the average Christian can't do this. And so what we need is a specialized group of Christians who can obey the Sermon on the Mount while the rest of us goes out and does kind of like life in the real world. And so we need a group of people who are going to give away their possessions, who are going to forsake oaths and militaries and all of that, and they're going to live in a little monastic community, and they're going to do that for the rest of us. Which, I kind of like that reading, don't you? I mean, wouldn't it be fantastic if you, you could just have a specialized group of people that were the radical Christians? You know, but of course, within Christianity and within the Gospel of Matthew itself, there are not two levels of Christianity. You know, I know in our own world, you know, we sometimes think that if you're really devout, you know, if you're really committed, you know, if you're a part of the proud and the, the, what, the, the, the brave, you become what? A Marine. And if you're just lazy, you become a, you become a part of the Air Force. <laughs> I'm just, 
just kidding, where's Larry James? I works on Larry all the time. But, um, <laughs> but of course, there are not two levels of Christianity. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this. He calls his 12 to go out and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to what? Obey everything I have commanded. It's not that some obey all and all are called to obey some, but according to Jesus, all disciples are invited to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So the monastic reading has some questions. A third, a third reading is uh, associated oftentimes with Martin Luther, and, it what, and it's what might be called the impossible ideal. And it goes something like this, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you've thought this. You've thought, look, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to teach us that no one can obey the Sermon on the Mount. It's like a mirror that when you point it in front of yourself, it exposes all of your brokenness and all of your sin and the depth of just how wrong you are so that you might become poor in spirit and seek the grace of God. Now, there's something in that, right? Of course, when we are confronted with our own brokenness before the face of God, it should cause us to cry out to God for mercy and grace. And God's grace is only for people who recognize they need it. You know, the kingdom of heaven truly is for the poor in spirit. But here's the problem with that. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a little parable of two houses. And he says, there's a wise man and a foolish builder, and the wise man builds his house upon a rock, and the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. You remember that song? The wise man built his house upon the sand. Come on, let's go. If you grew up in the 80s in church, you might know that. If not, you were like, what are you talking about? But Here's the point. Jesus says, it is the person who hears the saints of mine and puts them in to practice. In other words, Jesus doesn't give this sermon to show us that we don't put it into practice. Jesus gives us this sermon in order that we might put it into practice. But that leaves us with some questions. Who can do that and how? I mean, come on, Jesus. How is this supposed to work anyway? How are we actually supposed to read this sermon? as good news. And to answer that question, I want to actually kind of frame the Sermon on the Mount. This is really an introduction to what we're going to be looking at in the weeks and months ahead. But I want to frame it by turning your attention to a saying of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Matthew chapter 11. Turn with me over to Matthew 11, verse 28. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 28. By the way, I just want to point out to you that um, I use a template for a keynote in uh, my Mac. And uh, I want you to see that I have a Bible verse up there, but underneath there, in the template, they say Johnny Appleseed. And I forgot to put Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Johnny Appleseed didn't say this. Jesus said it. That's a... uh, I'll have to change that in between services. (laughs) Templates are helpful, but they can be dangerous. But listen to what Jesus says here. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Anyone in the house stressed out, bummed out? Anybody in the house feel overworked and overtired, like life is just a little too overwhelming, like you feel like you've got some burdens? Any parents out there feel a little bit tired by parenting? 
remember hearing a comedian a while back talking about, he, 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 he described parenting, uh, he was a father of four children, and he said the move from three to four children, somebody said, what is it like going from three to four children? And he says, it's like you're drowning in the middle of the ocean, and while you're drowning, somebody throws you a baby. <laughs> But you might appreciate that. And of course, we live in a culture. I mean, we're in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a culture of work. And I feel it. You know, we feel driven to succeed. We feel driven to make something of ourselves. And, you know, people are always asking you, what do you do? You know, and you're, you're constantly trying to litigate and justify yourself by talking about what you do and how much you do. You know, there's another article that came out in the Wall Street Journal a while back that talked about how many Americans lie about the number of hours they actually work. Why do we do that? Well, it's because working an 11-hour day sounds a whole lot more impressive than an eight-hour day. And yet, ironically, doctors more and more are telling us that so many of our problems are the result of overwork. It's because we're working too much and too long. And Jesus says, listen, for those who labor and are heavy laden, I have good news. I will give you rest. But notice where his rest is found. Look what he says. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, it's ironic because on the one hand, Jesus says, are you weary? Are you tired? Come to me, I'll give you rest. Now, for those who are overworked, overburdened, overparenting, whatever, grandparenting, anybody here watching grandchildren and you're like too old for that now? Some of you? Like, Jesus says, come to me and I'm going to give you a yoke. A yoke is an instrument of work. It's a farming instrument. Now, you might think, I want a lazy boy recliner. I want a vacation. You're giving me an instrument of work. And that's what Jesus says. He says, take my yoke upon you. Now, what is a yoke? Well, many of us, uh, there are basically two different kinds of yokes. Well, there's three if you count eggs, egg yolks. But um, <laughs> there's kind of like the double yoke that you put on an oxen when it carries, a, when it pulls a plow. But I think the yoke that Jesus is referring to here is the kind of yoke that would go on a human being to help them carry burdens. And, and in the ancient world, and actually in many places in the world today, there are, bird, there are yokes that look something like this. And it's intended to distribute the weight of your burden so that you can carry more weight for a longer period of time without growing weary. And here is what Jesus says. He says, are you weary from carrying your burdens? Listen, you can't get away from burdens in life, can you? Life is full of hardship and difficulty and pain and work. What we need is not escape from our burdens. We need equipment to help us carry our burdens. And this is what Jesus offers. He says, come to me and I will give you my yoke, my yoke. But what is he actually referring to when Jesus talks about his yoke? Well, almost all of the commentators agree that when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, that Jesus was drawn upon a well-known idiom in the ancient world for um, the teaching of a master. 
And so oftentimes, Pharisees, scribes, they would have a body of teaching that would be their interpretation of Torah, that would help the people of God live in a way that pleased God. And the word you would use to describe your body of teaching was your yoke. And if you called disciples to yourself and they wanted to follow you, they would take on your yoke, meaning they would learn your way of life, they would learn your way of practicing Torah. And Jesus refers actually a little bit later in Matthew's gospel to the yoke that the scribes and the Pharisees were putting on people. You know what he says about it? He says the scribes and the Pharisees are loading down people uh, in ways like this. He says they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one finger to help them. He says, the yoke of the scribes and the Pharisees, the yoke of the religious teachers is not helping you. And so Jesus says, come and exchange what they're giving you for what I'm giving you. Now, most of us do not utilize the yoke of the scribes and the Pharisees to help us bear our burdens. But that doesn't mean you don't have ways and strategies that you cope with your burdens. And it doesn't mean that they're also not learned. Many of you have learned strategies for bearing your burdens from your family of origin. Many have learned it from your upbringing. Many have learned it from your social network. And for some of you, the way you bear your burdens, the way you deal with it, the way you you help kind of carry the burdens of life is you self-medicate with pain medication and alcohol. Some of you, you overwork and you try to prove yourself again and again because if you are success at work, then that will make you a success in life and you can finally be okay and the burdens will be fine. Some of us seek to bear our burdens with control. Some of you, you are deeply fearful people and I don't know why you're fearful. Maybe you were hurt. Maybe something was taken from you growing up but you react to that by becoming a control freak. And the way you bear your burdens is you try to manage and control everything and everyone around you, and you are so hard to be around. For some of you, the way you bear your burden is you play the victim card. You say, this isn't my burden, this is you. This is your fault. And you're so defensive and we feel like we're walking on eggshells around you. But there are all different strategies we employ, yokes we utilize in order to help us deal with the burdens of life. But here's the irony. So many of the yokes we use, so many of the strategies we use in order to deal with the burdens of our life, they actually create heavier burdens for us. They create more problems. Haven't you found this to be the case? You think, man, the the way I'm going to deal with this problem at work is I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid dealing with the problem in my marriage. I'm going to avoid the hard conversation. And it just gets worse. And you keep avoiding and avoiding and avoiding. It gets worse. Or you say, I'm going to control them. I'm going to control my children so that they don't get hurt. But the more you try to control them, the more they react and rebel against you and things get worse. And you have greater problems, greater burdens to bear, and your yoke is incapable of helping you carry that. You see, our strategies for life are not matched for the task of bearing the burdens of life. And so Jesus offers to us something else. He says, come and take my yoke upon you. And he says, learn from me. 
That word learn is the Greek word methete, which is the Greek word uh, that in a different form is translated as disciple. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, come to me and learn my teaching, learn my body of life, learn my way of life. And this is what we are given in the Sermon on the Mount. We are given the yoke of Jesus. We are given the way of Jesus. He says, look, you want to know a healthy marriage? Learn the way of Jesus. It is absolute radical purity and fidelity. You want to know the way of Jesus in your relationships? It is dealing with conflict, not avoiding it. It is honest speech. It is truthfulness. It is honesty with yourself and others. You want to know how to deal with your enemies? Don't keep seeking revenge on them. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. You want to know how to be someone who who is devout with God? Stop doing it in order to be seen by people. Start practicing a way of life where it comes from the inside out in a way that honors God. And stop being so darn critical and judgmental of people. And, And don't worry. You don't need to worry. Your father cares for you, Jesus says. Jesus offers to us in this sermon a way of life that is free from anxiety and worry and revenge, a way of life that is marked by radical sexual purity, that is marked by radical generosity with our resources, that is marked by radical honesty. And it's a way of life that Jesus himself embodies. Jesus is the one who goes the extra mile. Jesus is the one when his cheek is slapped and his beard is picked out. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, come to me and learn a different way of handling your problems in life. And he goes on, look what he says about it. He says, and when you do that, you will find rest for your souls. You experience a deep rest inside. You know, some of you, you might be in this place where you have been doggedly determined to handle your life on your own terms. How's that going for you? You are determined to hold on to your grudges, to hold on to unforgiveness, to hold on to control, to hold on to your little addictions, to hold on to these things because these are your ways of coping with it. But that is a life-sucking way to go. And Jesus points us into something that is better. He says, come to me, take my way of life upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. But is that hard or is it easy to do that? Is it easy to take on the way of Jesus? We were sitting around the dinner table uh, last night with my kids and I said, guys, is the way of Jesus, is it hard or is it easy? It's a good question to ask. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give my rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Then verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. But what does that even mean? Is it really easy? Jesus says, don't worry. Is it easy just to snap your fingers and stop worrying? Jesus says, give your money away. Is it easy to give your money away? 
Jesus says, look, uh, if you go to church and you remember that you have something against someone else, he says, put your gift down at the altar and go reconcile with your brother before you go to church. Is it easy to reconcile with people with whom you have had a falling out with? Jesus says anger is uh, like murder. Is it easy just to eradicate anger from your life? Anyone in the house find that easy? What do you mean, Jesus? Your way of life is easy. Listen, almost every commentator points out that the Greek word translated easy here has a much broader semantic range and it's in its two other uses in the New Testament. It is translated as kind and it's a description of God. And I think what Jesus is saying is not that my yoke is easy in the sense that, oh, it's no problem. Living the Christian life is no problem. I think what Jesus is saying is that my yoke, my way of life is good and it is kind. There's that great line in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where uh, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy run into the home of the beavers and they're talking together about this great uh, figure named Aslan who's this terrifying lion and uh, it's the Christ figure in, in Lewis's book. And uh, the, 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 the beavers are describing him. And they indicate that the children might meet him. And Lucy quivers and she says, oh, but is he quite safe? And, and uh, Mrs. Beaver says, of course he ain't safe, dearie. He's a lion. <laughs> but she said, he's good. The way of Jesus is not easy but it is good. It is a kind way to go. It is good. And Jesus says, you can seek to learn my way of life and find rest. Or let me put it like this. You know, one of my goals has been as a father, and this is the goal of every good father, I think. I mean, if you're a decent uh, human being as a father, you will want to teach your children how to surf. Because it is the sport of kings. I mean, it is, some people, you know, um, I remember there was a movie when I was growing up in the 80s, there was a song on there about football. It's the sport of kings, better than diamond rings. Anyway, I'm sorry, this is, I'm. But they're referring to football as the sport of kings. It's not. Surfing really was practiced by kings in Polynesian islands. And so naturally, I want to instill in my daughters the skill of surfing. Now, I will tell you right now, surfing is good, but it is not easy. Surfing, quite frankly, is one of the most difficult sports to ever master. And one of the most frustrating things, I, I've tried to teach many people how to surf, and one of the most frustrating things for people is they just can't get it. And it takes so long. And you have to keep at it. You've got to be persistent. And so I've taken my daughters and we have gone step by step about how to paddle into a wave and how to stand up in the proper stance on a surfboard. And I get them the right kind of surfboard in order to enable them to learn how to surf. And slowly but surely, they're getting this incredibly beautiful, amazing, life-giving sport down into their lives. And this is a parable for the way of Jesus. You see, the way of Jesus is not easy, but it is good. 
And actually along the way, you know, the cool thing about surfing is that even though it's difficult, it's fun even your first few times gone. I mean, you just have fun out there in the water. Even if you don't have it down, even if you can't surf like Kelly Slater, who's the greatest surfer to ever walk the face of the planet, even if you can't surf like Kelly Slater, you can still have fun. And all the while, my affection for my daughters as a, my affection for my daughters is not contingent on how well they do it. Because I love them, I want them to learn it. But my love and my affection is never for a second contingent upon how well they do it. In fact, I am with them every step of the way. I'm out there in the water with them. I push them into waves. I watch them. I cheer for them. I jump up and down, do backflips. You know, when they ride a wave, I am so excited. I videotape them. We talk about it afterwards and look at the videos. And and Jesus says, look, come to me. I'm not just giving you a body of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I give you my very self. You see, in Jesus Christ, the eternal God has come, in, has come among us to give us him very, his very self. He offers us a deep relationship with him. And even though the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly difficult and challenging, All throughout, the assumption is is that this is a way of life for people who are already sons and daughters of their Father in heaven. You don't earn your way into the kingdom of God by becoming a really obedient person. Rather, the kingdom of God comes near to us in and through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and it is given to us as a free gift. You become a son or daughter of God as grace and gift. And as children of God, God the Father delights in us and he says, now let me teach you how to live. God the Son says, come to me, take my yoke upon you and learn my way of life. It is the best possible way you can live. So in the weeks ahead, here's a couple things I want to challenge you with. Number one, I want to challenge you as we go through the Sermon on the Mount to commit to reading the Sermon on the Mount multiple times over the next several months. Maybe you can try to read it through once a week. Maybe you can spend a little bit of time every day with the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Gandhi wasn't even a Christian, and the guy spent time with it every day for 40 years. And if he can do it, you can do it for four months, right? You know, so often I I think we as Christians think that the Christian life doesn't require effort because in our minds we've gotten in in our heads that grace is opposed to effort. But listen, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace actually inspires and motivates effort. It motivates us to want to spend time with God and his word. And so... Spend time every day reading through the Sermon on the Mount, but don't just read it, but pray it. Pray through different areas of the Sermon on the Mount. Are you right now have an unreconciled relationship with a son or daughter, a sibling, a friend? Then pray specifically over those areas in the Sermon on the Mount that call you to make relationships right. Are you right now struggling with bitterness and anger because somebody has treated you unjustly? Pray over, pray through those areas in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile. And 
Throughout the whole thing, pray through, meditate on how Jesus Christ himself became the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount for your sake so that he might come among you and me and bring us love and grace and forgiveness. And everything he invites us into in this sermon is that which he himself has already walked. And he says, come to me and let me teach you how to live. You know, Jesus Christ is not just the savior of the world. Jesus is the smartest human being that ever lived. Do you believe that? Anybody here need wisdom on how to live life well? It is here. It is in this beautiful, compelling, moral vision. And so in the weeks and in the next few months, we're going to be spending time carefully walking through this text and seeing how it might guide our way of life and draw us nearer to Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, you see all and you know all. You know the burdens that exist in this place this morning and you know the strategies we use to deal with it. Some are conscious and intentional, some are subconscious and unintentional. But I pray, God, that wherever we're at, that you might expose us and that you might draw us to deep repentance and that you would make us more and more into a community of people that learns how to do the things that your son Jesus did. Make us into a community not just of beliefs, people who believe that we are right and other people are wrong, but make us into a community of practice, a community that embodies in the midst of this world a radically different way of life that is truly life-giving that leads to human flourishing for ourselves and for our families and for our communities and for our neighborhoods, for our cities. God, we pray that you would use our time in the Sermon on the Mount to form and shape us into your faithful people in this world. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.